Hello and welcome to Gripping in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. At the start of this episode, I just want to say the schedule for the podcast has been a bit bizarre and up and down. And whilst I'm roughly aiming to get one to your month, that may or may not happen. I try to hold myself to a certain I try to hold myself to certain standards, but truth be told, this idea that I need to hit certain targets and release dates and things is pretty arbitrary and is causing me more stress than it needs to. So, as of now, here's the plan. I'll keep podding, but I won't swear to any particular release schedule because I don't find it especially helpful and I think it stresses me out more than it comforts anyone listening. I've got loads of fabulous stuff upcoming, covering diverse subject matter but all reassuringly spineless. Hope you'll enjoy them as they arrive on a schedule of my own bloody choosing. Now, on with the podcast. I've discussed my own journey with invertebrate animals here. My mum hates the term journey because it's a wretched cliche, but it's also a pretty good one and a pretty accurate one. A pretty typical journey for the people I've had the pleasure to speak to goes like this, that as children they are fascinated by invertebrates and then as they get older, that fascination does not abate and so they deliver themselves into some kind of career which involves invertebrate animals. But there are different stories and each has its own subtleties. Ups and downs of interest and disinterest, often coloured by the notion of approval and the willingness to be a cheeky little weirdo. I was an insect weirdo, copying the pictures of beetles out of my encyclopaedia, and then I was a different kind of weirdo for a while, and now I'm an invertebrate weirdo again. That's my own little arc. But most of us aren't professionally involved in the world of invertebrates. We're somewhere on a kind of spectrum, shifting and sliding around, being pulled between disinterest, fear, revulsion and fascination. I wanted to talk to someone who is interested in invertebrate animals or whose feelings had changed over time. I wanted to talk to someone about changing relationships, who would give me some insight into what it meant to come round to the idea of invertebrates as being worthwhile and interesting animals. And as a bonus, someone who was raising children and therefore reflecting upon how they presented little creatures to little people. I wanted to talk to someone who was interesting and engaging and who had a podcast about animals. And so I raised my spyglass to my eye and who'd have thought it, I spied Ellen Weatherford down the other end, doing double thumbs up and very happy to talk about creepy crawlies. And so today, we're chatting about how our relationship with the invertebrate world can change with podcaster and animal enthusiast, Ellen Weatherford. So today I am joined by podcaster and animal enthusiast, Ellen Weatherford. How are you today, Ellen? I am so happy and excited to be here talking to you. Uh, Not my first time talking to you, but it is, of course, a delight as always. I'm thrilled you think so. And Ellen (laughs) is the host of More Successful um, Podcast, Just the Zoo of Us, which is a, I I called you an animal enthusiast. I guess you call it an an animal enthusiast (laughs) podcast, right? Yeah, for sure. A podcast about animals, learning about animals and discussing in each episode, one or more animals in in some depth, and just being passionate about animals and rating them, and like you said, I've 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 done that. We talk yeah. about fleas, um, but today we're just going to talk about about animals, and predictably, I'm going to kind of wave my arms and, and <laughs> by the flag for invertebrate animals specifically. But I don't want you to feel initially that you are duty bound to talk about them. <laughs> so I wanted to start off by asking with that in mind what has been your kind of your, your personal and professional relationship with with animals and with the natural world I guess so I really don't have a professional history with animals to speak of other than like for a few years when I was a teenager I worked at a pet store <laughs> and like that, that was really it yeah I mean maybe um and so other than that it's all been professional wise, I guess all just this podcast, like learning stuff through doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. But, you know, personally, I've always been an animal lover, you know, and anybody who's known me for any amount of time knows that that's always been something, a passion that I return to, you know, I was a little kid and that was definitely my thing. I always wanted to, um, if I was going to play with toys, I wanted them to be animal toys. You know, I would get, I would want to buy the Barbie like toy sets and then I would basically get rid of the doll and keep the little animals she came with. Um, you know, so I was always wanting to play with animals. I watched so much Animal Planet as a kid, as I feel like a lot of little animal nerd kids did. Um, very much raised on Crocodile Hunter and the most extreme 
and stuff like that. So I was always an animal nerd as a kid, though I have to admit I'm a more recent convert to team invertebrate Um, because it's definitely not something I was like encouraged to embrace as a kid. And naturally, you know, media for kids is usually geared towards the mammals like sure. your charismatic mammals you'll get some birds and reptile bird and reptile content in there but there really wasn't a lot of pro invertebrate yeah. content it has really taken doing this podcast and kind of setting out with the intention of learning about and learning to love invertebrates more and that has really brought me around to okay yeah. And when I say invertebrates, I guess I should really specify that I'm really more talking about like your arthropods, like insects, mm-hmm. spiders, stuff like that. I had, I've always had kind of a, you know, a love for cephalopods, which I feel like are naturally a little more charismatic. They're an easier yeah. ask, I think, to love yes. cephalopods. <laughs> well, I think that with, with the invertebrates and with the mammals and stuff, but one of the reasons we like mammals we tend to like things that we kind of see ourselves reflected in. Yeah, you want to relate to it. And a, a cephalopod basically looks like a big head, like an underwater <laughs> head with legs. Yeah. And whereas a spider doesn't look, it looks like a spider, right? Very high yeah. leg to head ratio. Enormously so. Not it's as much way off. as <laughs> not as much as as some things, but the that is one of the barriers, and and there's lots of barriers in terms of people liking and recognising even different kinds of animals. I was listening to a... I had to turn off a podcast today because I got a little bit on my high horse because mm. they were talking about... The discussion was, what's the worst animal? Oh, and no. They, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I can tell you right now, do not start that. <laughs> but it, and it, 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 it's it's lighthearted and it's its own thing. But one of the questions came up, which is, is an insect an animal? And this is the kind of... For those of us that are... That are fighting the fight for the invertebrates and that are passionate mm-hmm. about invertebrate life. Nails on a That's what you're up against. Yeah. Because they're not necessarily even recognized as such. So but you said that when you started doing your podcast, which like like I said, is is about taking animals and and learning about them and mm-hmm. and it's clearly a it comes from a position of wanting to learn more about animals and wanting to celebrate them. But you said that you part of that process has kind of led you it's brought you around, I think you said, to... Yeah. <laughs> was that a conscious thing or is that something that has, has kind of happened by accident over the course of doing this? It, In some ways, it kind of was conscious because I do think that I tend to be kind of the person that seeks out underappreciated things. Sure. Like, I do... Maybe it's like a slightly contrarian in nature, right? That I want to be the person that likes things that other people don't like. You know, like... I'm, this, no, I'm completely with you. You know what I mean? Like wanting to like something that's not, oh, this is what everybody likes, right? So I was kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to seek out things that don't get a lot of attention and like make this effort to appreciate them more because I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate them. Um, So I was really kind of looking for that sort of hidden gem, like hidden treasure sort of moment, which I I found. I have learned about some of the most incredible invertebrates through like seeking out unusual weird creatures that don't get a lot of hype um so i it was kind of a conscious decision also like i realized that i had spent my whole life afraid of spiders and afraid of cockroaches you know the typical Mm. creepy crawlies that people are pretty generally afraid of and i had spent my whole life afraid of them even though I knew logically that I didn't really have a lot to be afraid of, but I wanted to like understand them better. And it was sort of like consciously recognizing that I had an illogical fear and wanting to see if I could combat that with learning about it and, and making that fear better, which has done wonders for not just my relationship with the invertebrates around me, but also for like fish. Like I was really, really scared of fish. I've always been really terrified of fish. Um, and even just recently, actually, as far as invertebrates go too, uh, just recently we went out to California on a family vacation. And one of the things we really wanted to do was go tide pooling. 
Uh, we don't have rocky tide pools where we live. We have like really sandy beaches, but we don't have rock pools. So we went out specifically to go look at them and had my had my sandals on. So we were like getting down in the water and we were looking at anemones and hermit crabs and starfish and chitons and all sorts of incredible like marine invertebrates that I think a few years ago, I would not have been comfortable being so close to them. Right. Okay. But you know, I, I felt like over the course of learning about them and being like, okay, why am I afraid of this thing? Do I need to be afraid of this thing? Can I maybe just understand its behavior a little bit better so that I don't feel like I need to be so nervous around them. And it helped a lot. And I, you know, I even had this moment where I talked to, I mentioned to my husband and my friend that was with me, I was like, I just want to recognize I've come a long way (laughs) in my anxieties and fears over like marine animals and fish (laughs) and and invertebrates and stuff. Like I I feel like a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have done this and I did it and had a great time. So I felt like it was big. uh, It felt like a big moment of, it was like a rewarding moment yeah. of like, I did a lot of work to learn about this stuff and now I get to have this cool experience because of it. Well, it's interesting that you characterize it as a, you characterize it as an improvement. Yeah. So there is a kind of a, a judgment that things are better now mm-hmm. or, or, or you've, you've improved it. I mean, t- tell me, because you are a, a Floridian, is that the right word to use? Uh, yeah. A slur? <laughs> okay, a Floridian. <laughs> no, and, I mean, it depends on your feelings about Florida, but I mean. tone of voice, right? I've, yeah. I've got, very little precon is that true there's like all those kind of meme- yeah there's all those kind of memes about like the florida man and stuff for sure which i'm vaguely aware of oh um, yeah folks are wild down here <laughs> yeah it, it kicks off but the what i do know about florida is that it's not like the uk in the sense of climate we just discussed this before kind of coming on mm-hmm. and in terms of biodiversity because if you grew up in the uk the insects and the the animals basically can't hurt you mm. and there is no threat from spiders and there is no threat from anything like that and i know that in some parts where that's not the case i don't know about florida mm. but maybe that kind of was there a sense growing up that the animals around you could be dangerous oh absolutely yeah it is a sort of thing where like first of all you see a spider you got to kill it right away. You know, like it was always a sort of thing that's like, you see a spider that's, um, we do have some legitimately like potentially dangerous, um, you know, bugs around here. We have black widows, which okay. if they do bite you, which is exceedingly rare, but it happens. Um, it can be a very serious bite. They're very venomous. Um, we do, you know, we have a lot of bugs that can bite you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very few of them are like medically significant in their amount of danger that they pose to a human. Like really the black widow is the only one I can think of that lives where I live, but there are brown recluses elsewhere in the country. They're also very rare and they only live in a very small range, but Mm -hmm. they're extremely venomous. So it's like, if you do get bit, it's probably going to be a whole thing. Um, But it is, it's really, really rare that it happens. But yeah, it was definitely the sort of thing that's like, oh, if you like, don't even stop to check to see what kind of spider it is. Like, don't bother Mm -hmm. trying to figure out if it's venomous or not just get rid of it um which was which took the form of killing and it was kind of over the years that i came around to oh well let's start instead just moving the spider outside and then over eventually over time it was oh if the spider is in a place where it's not bothering anybody like maybe it's in the back of our pantry where we never go now i just leave it you know Mm. i'm now i'm just like well you know you're probably picking out some of the ants and picking away at our earwigs which can also bite you you know, so I I have gotten a lot more chill about that stuff. Uh, the, and, and I do see that sort of help me not feel so anxious. You know, like sometimes I, I, I'm not worried about like, oh, what if there's bugs in there? Because it's like, there's probably, there probably are bugs in there and it's fine. <laughs> like it's not, it, it puts my mind at a lot more ease about stuff. Since doing the podcast, you've always liked animals. You've always been interested in them. But since doing this project, has it kind of, has knowing more about animals changed the way you see the world a little bit then? It sounds like it has in terms of the invertebrates and stuff like that, but has it, how has it changed kind of the way you interact with the world around you? Um, first of all, like understanding the types of biodiversity that you'll mm. see in different ecosystems has made me a lot more excited to see different 
habitats, right? So we just went out to uh, California and we were exploring regions that are so different from where I live. So where I live is coastal marshland. Um, it's very grassy. It's extremely wet. It's very hot. You get this sort of like tropical, like marsh mixed with a little bit of swamp here and there mm-hmm. sort of environment. Um, so I'm very used to the sort of animals that we see there, but then going to a new place, I was extremely excited to see like the different plant life. Like the, we, we did a really cool hike where we hiked through a natural, a natural reserve with a docent who actually like stopped along the way and showed us like, these are the types of trees that grow here. Um, And then this is the type of lichen that grows off of the trees. And this is the effect that it has on the ecosystem. And then here's what kind of animals can live in this area. So like, rather than just kind of walking through the area and being like, Oh, that's pretty. You got some grass, you got some flowers. Like instead I was able to kind of go through and appreciate like what makes this ecosystem unique, what's important about it. Like, how is it different from what I'm used to? Um, It just really gives me a lot of perspective, I guess, on like how really interesting things are. But on the reverse side of that, I guess it also makes me almost hyper aware of things like invasive species that we have. Um, it's made me notice things like when I'm out, uh, especially in Florida, Florida has a huge problem with invasive species and it's almost made me kind of hyper aware of it so that I might be like enjoying a really beautiful, you know, walk through nature or something. And then I am reminded like, oh, there's a feral cat colony that lives here. Or, you know, I might see something that is like, if I didn't already know what I knew about the ecosystem, I would probably just be like, oh, that's pretty. I appreciate that. Um, But because I know it a little bit better, sometimes it can. You have this burden of understanding the problems as well as (laughs) the things that are beautiful about it. So you have to kind of accept that there is that cost of like you will have the blessing of knowledge and the terrible burden of knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. It's a pain, right? Like any book you read about any book you read about like animals, any kind of journey you make into that world, there's always this caveat of like, they're all dying. And like, if people don't do stuff, that's going to be a further problem. And any book you read about insects always begins by like justifying them. Mm-hmm. And always ends by saying, they're all dying. Yeah. And there's, always a ch- and there's often a chapter about, like, you better start eating these soon, otherwise we're all going to be in big trouble. And, that's, <laughs> and it, it is that kind of thing of, like, I- I'm conscious that for a lot of people, animals and invertebrate animals as well, don't play a massive role in their life beyond kind of what is more typical. And And it is, like, you don't want to... I worry about bumming people out, talking about, right. like, that kind of stuff. And, like... There's a lot of talk at the moment about like how people should, about the responsible way to have a cat or a dog. I never kind of realised that until getting more involved in sort of talking about nature and talking about animals. And yeah, it's very much information that like stays within these sort of circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're not in those circles already, you probably have never heard this stuff before in your life. And you feel like <laughs> such a killjoy now, and it's like, oh, yeah. great, now 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 dogs are ruined for me. Like I. <laughs> It's nice seeing a dog run across a field, but now I'm like, but, but one thing you, you just said was really interesting, which is that it's, I asked you how it had changed, changed things for you. And you jumped straight to plants, mm-hmm. but your podcast isn't about plants. Right. You know, you're, so, so what, what, how's that jump happened? Um, I think I was just thinking of the, the particular hike that we went on as like an example of a time that recently we were in like a completely different ecosystem. And also Mm -hmm. when you're like out actually exploring nature, when you're out hiking, the vast majority of what you're going to see is plants. (laughs) And and for a lot of people, plants just, and, and for me, I'm guilty of this too, but for, you know, I would say probably most people, plants just like are part of the background, right? They're like, they're the setting, they're the stage for yeah. the animals. Um, and we probably should, we, we definitely should appreciate plants a lot more than we do um, and take the time to actually like learn, you know, the 
plants that are unique to our ecosystems, what role they play, what plants are invasive, because that introduces a whole host of problems too. I mean, for here, I'm sure for y'all, it's probably not as big of a deal, but Florida has a whole host of invasive species issues. But I was just thinking specifically about this hike that we just went on where, you know, plants Mm -hmm. were the majority of what we saw. um, And we spent a lot of time talking about the plant life there, but I, I do think in a lot of ways, especially when you're talking about terrestrial animals, it's kind of hard to talk about animals without talking about plants also. Because you got to talk about, like, what are the plants that the animal lives around? Like, what plants does it depend on? Like, where does it, like, does it use the plants for shelter? Does it use it for food? Like, I, I think plants are an important part of it, too. And also learning to appreciate plants has been just an extension of that, like wanting to learn more and appreciate things that are underappreciated mm-hmm. um, because plants just get shoved into the background so much. Um, my friend Vikram, Be- Rick- my friend Vikram Baliga is incredible at, you know, hyping people up about plants on planthropology. So um, I think that just bleeds into like, once you have that drive to learn about things that you don't already know about, you know, it's so easy to apply that excitement yeah. to things that you wouldn't otherwise probably be interested or excited about. <laughs> if you're enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth. And on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's your own perspective to share a story, a photo, or what have you. One of the nice things about getting to know about animals is that maybe you come from a place of there are people, and then there are animals around people, and they, they're there for us, and they're not, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there's the forest, and the forest where the animals live. And you can view it that way, or you can think, well, no, the forest is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And then you think, well, the forest isn't just the trees, it's the soil and the soil's full of fungus and, and 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 it it spirals right and suddenly you've got this sense of this more this richer sense of the world when you start to learn more about it and you start to look at it more and you start to kind of make those connections between things it can be kind of overwhelming i think it can be very rapidly overwhelming because for me especially i short circuit when I feel like there's so much to learn here that I'll never know it all. Mm. You know, it's like, I'm never going to understand everything about that. There is to know about like the forest that I live near, or like, there's just so much there that I'm never going to know everything about it. And that can be a very like distressing feeling. If you are the type of person like me that wants to know everything, <laughs> but it, it is a good exercise in, you know, figuring out what are the important things that you need to know? Like what, what can I focus my energy on so that I can zoom in on what's important and maybe be at peace with not understanding some things and that just being the vibe and it's fine, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's also really, really grounding. Um, if you are once again, a person like me who tends to spend a lot of time, like absorbed in media, social media, spending a lot of time online, like you get so wrapped up into the sort of abstract concepts of human life, right? Things like, you know, your career or your, the economy or these big greater human issues, but then learning more about all sorts of the, the organisms that live around you in nature can be just really grounding and just bring you back into presence. Like it brings you back into where you are in that moment and it can be really helpful for snapping you out of this like spiral of being too lost in your thoughts or anything. You you can really connect with like, okay, the things that you can see and hear and touch around you really kind of brings you back to reality. Yeah. And when I, you know, when I read about human concerns, I'm involved in that, but Mm -hmm. plants don't know about me and I can't be (laughs) an ant. I would like to talk about some invertebrates if that's okay. Yeah, please. I love, I would love right. to. <laughs> Let, well, let's jump on, on board. So you've been learning about animals. You've been researching animals. You've been hearing about animals. There's lots of animals knocking about. Mm-hmm. Since you started doing this this podcast series, which you said has kind of opened your eyes to the invertebrate world, which is a which is a big old world. Which yeah. is, which <laughs> Most is, of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like 97% of animals <laughs> invertebrate, right? Since you started doing this then... 
Can you tell me some like things that have surprised you since you started learning more about the invertebrate world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest ones is that, you know, spiders are not as big a deal <laughs> as right, we've yeah, been yeah. up to believe, right? You know, I, I read a figure that um, lightning strikes kill more people on average than spiders do per year. Mm -hmm. uh, you're more likely to be killed by being struck by lightning than you are by being bit by a spider. Uh, and also that like a lot of major complications that come from spider bites aren't from the spider bite. It's from like a secondary infection you get after a spider bite. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just learning a lot about how the bugs around us are not nearly as dangerous as we hype them up to be, especially with wasps. Um, I don't know how big a deal wasps are uh, on, on y'all in y'all's neck of the woods. They're not popular. Coming to peace with wasps has probably been the most recent thing, you know, because even even among animal lovers, wasps are still a big ask um, because it's not immediately evident what they're doing for your ecosystem, why they're doing what they're doing, like why they tend to be so uh, like defensive, like all of that stuff is not immediately obvious. And also they don't produce things for humans like bees do. So like we can't, we can't attach them to a like, a product that we can profit on sure. they so really they just, suffer from the bee comparison they do they they end up looking like the bee's evil twin mm -hmm. um and so just like learning a lot more about like their behavior realistically like it's that even just the concept that you can peacefully coexist with wasps around you um is you know a such a new concept to me but also I don't know where this came from, but like, there's always been this idea that's been sort of like parroted to me of like wasps don't do anything for the yeah. ecosystem. Right. Like people just say, Oh, they're just, you can just kill them all day long and it's fine. And there's no effect because they don't have an imp, which I think what they meant was that they don't produce yeah. like a, any, like they don't produce honey like bees do. So I don't, maybe that's where that came from. But learning more about like the fact that they're predators, so they help control the populations of other insects. A lot of wasps are parasitoids, so they'll control the wasp population for you. Um, and they're pollinators on top of it. So like they're doing a lot of stuff in their ecosystem. And just learning a lot about that has definitely made me think twice, you know, about reaching for the the wasp spray <laughs> every time we see one. We had one in our house literally last night. Um, okay. There was a wasp that was probably about maybe two or three inches long um and this was a so this was a massive wasp um huge like the length of one of my fingers i think and so this, um, this is a good example of how your whole setup is different to mine <laughs> that, is, that is not a concern in the uk oh we got some big boys mm. uh and so and they're pretty feisty too like if you're a little too close to their nest they will they'll go for it they'll mm -hmm. they're they're throwing hands but we had one in our house and I, it was really close to the back door of our house. So I was like, you know what, let's see if we can figure this out. Let's, and it became a puzzle game because we have both sliding like glass doors and sliding screen doors that slide independently of each other. Mm -hmm. And so it became this like complicated, like, like, you know, those little ads you get for mobile games sometimes where you have to like slide things around to like get a ball through a maze or something like sure. that. It became that, except the ball was a very angry and enormous wasp. <laughs> we were like opening and closing and opening and closing all the doors to try to get the wasp out. And it worked. Eventually we got it out and it just flew away and went on about its business. And I felt so accomplished after that. I was like, you see, we didn't need to kill the wasp. We just let it fly free. It didn't want to be in here. We didn't want it in here. Nobody was happy in that situation. And we came to a good compromise. So that was a, that was a big win. I think yeah. for us. <laughs> and it's, it's a game with a game with insect compassion at its heart, which I'm always happy oh, to yeah. hear about. What you've said earlier about like people not understanding that <laughs> insects are animals, mm -hmm. I think ties into that a lot. It is so easy, especially when you work with science communication. It is so easy to forget what the average everyday person off the street knows. Um, it is incredibly easy when you like run in animal loving circles to forget that the average everyday person 
very well might not know that insects are animals and because they've literally never had to think about that before. Um, and so I try really hard to always remember that's like a lot of people live lives that don't intersect with insects very often. And so you'd never need to think about that. Like that wouldn't be any information you'd ever need to have. Um, but then when people don't think they're animals, they don't, first of all, don't think about them playing a role in their ecosystem. And then second of all, don't think about extending any empathy or compassion towards them because mm. they're just little things that fly around. Um, so understanding them better has definitely helped extend a lot of empathy. It's a big ask to get everyone on side. And I think that what, what podcasts like yours do is they do just sort of set a tone mm. of like enthusiasm and of of caring about things. Talking about your game with the wasp, like mm. <laughs> you've got kids in the house, right? Yeah, we have a, an eight-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Right. How involved in the wasp game were these children? Oh, not at all. I oh, ac- okay. We actually made an, a conscious effort to... We, like, told the kids to go play with something else in a different room so that they wouldn't... Uh, right. It's the eight-year-old. The eight-year-old, I think, would have not been cool with it if he knew there was a three-inch-long wasp in the house. <laughs> okay, so you've described your own childhood, and it's kind of, like... My childhood, because my dad was very pro-insects and That's very pro-animals. And so there was lots of there was lots of going and looking for things. And I was this kind of like, do you remember a PlayStation game called Army Men? No, uh, we okay. were an Xbox house. <laughs> this, is, this is pre-Xbox. This is PS1. <laughs> right. So there's a game called Army Men and it was, it was bad. But it was basically, it was, you know, the little green army men that jump oh, around? Yeah. And, yeah. So it's them, but they're in a game. And in the game, you can like have a flamethrower. And with the flamethrower, you can set fire to trees. Mm. And I remember people saying like, oh, Tom won't like this game because like you've got to kill trees in it. Mm. And I was this person, I, like, and I always felt so like, like such hard work because I didn't like playing games where like animals got put in danger and stuff. And like, oh, sure, I used to sure, lecture sure. people about it, which it's not a way to make friends. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of where I come from. But even I so, feel you. Yeah. I like, there were certain things that frightened me unnecessarily. And like, I didn't read, I didn't mind spiders, but like, but that's, that's kind of my background. But your background, you said kind of more typical, like insects and invertebrates were not, you weren't a fan as a kid, right? Right. Yeah, for sure not. Um, there was, uh, <laughs> I remember one time trying to watch, I was like probably seven years old and I tried to watch uh, The Mummy. Mm-hmm. which classic yeah, you know yeah, yeah. everybody's seen the mummy uh there is a scene in the mummy that involves scarab beetles in a very distressing situation yeah uh for me i believe they were like crawling in someone's skin or something like that from within a person right oh no, right. no i know what you mean yeah yeah They're, it's like, not crawling ideal. around like under someone's skin and i had nightmares about that for months and i never finished the movie <laughs> it was one of those things where it was like i screamed and ran out of the room crying it's um, worth saying they don't do that in real life that's not a thing fact check yeah but it's a good movie um, <laughs> so i've heard i still haven't finished it <laughs> it was sold to me when i was a kid like my friend had the video and it was sold to me as like, this is the scariest film there is. Like, you don't want to... Mm. Are you brave enough to watch this film? But but now you've got kids. Yes. You're not showing them the mummy. It wouldn't be responsible. But <laughs> what's their sense of the invertebrate world, do you think? So my eight-year-old, you know, I had him long before we started the podcast. Podcast mm. is only three years old at this point. So, you know, I... I think that I was not in the same pro invertebrate space I am now when he was much younger. And so I was a little late on that one. And I do think he, you know, he did get that fear of bugs, right? Because I would see a bug. I would react with fear. He saw me react with fear and would develop the same fear. Mm -hmm. So um, he does have that, you know, he, if he sees a, you know it can be even just a fly flying around in the house and he's a little on he's on uneasy about that's the word (laughs) he's a little uneasy about you know bugs being in the house if there's a bug nearby it really kind of bothers him which now i'm trying to do the damage control like now i'm at the point where i'm trying to pick it up and um something i'll do is if there is a bug flying around in the house or something i'll try to identify what it is 
Um, and it might say like, oh, that's a that's a gnat. Or, oh, that's a, you know, a daddy long legs or something like that. And then explain more about what that animal is and what it does. And, like, I'll be like, it's not going to hurt you because it literally can't. Like, it doesn't have mandibles big enough to bite you. Or, like, it's not going to hurt you because it all it's trying to do is get to a dark place. Like, it's just trying to um, get to somewhere where it can hide. So, you know, as long as you don't bother it, it's not going to bother you. So I try to like do that damage control. And I think it's, it's starting to gradually work over time. Um, he had a blast looking at the marine invertebrates and the tide pools. He loves stuff like that. So the marine invertebrates, a okay. (laughs) (laughs) Loves those. (laughs) Yeah. So, and also recently, um, it rained really hard and we were walking back to the car and even though he is, very sensitive to rain he doesn't like to be rained on um i stopped on the way back to the car i said there are so many snails on the ground right now and sure enough on the sidewalk below us there were probably 30 to 50 snails um just slithering around on the sidewalk and we stood there and counted the snails and um we got real close and you know i i gave him a quick little snail anatomy lesson where i was like here are the eye stalks like the organs are in the shell here's the foot um you know and and he loved that and right. i feel like snails are just bug adjacent enough that like that's a good stepping stone like you'll get there <laughs> they're kind of friendly looking as well right like they are they can't so chase a, you they can't um so it's a great gateway so he was he was very warm to the snails, which I thought was great. There have been some times where he's been interested in some of the bugs we've seen out, like millipedes. He loves yeah. millipedes. Um, you know, so I think he's warming up to them gradually over time. Um, but the little one, you know, the little one's only a year and a half old. We have been a lot more uh, friendly to our invertebrate friends. And I do think he had, even though he's only one and a half, it really does seem like he has a very different approach towards insects we had um a few weeks ago there was a sweat bee on our door on our sliding glass door and it's this beautiful metallic green bee with like a fuzzy belly um cutest thing in the world and it was sitting there on the door and i didn't see it until the little one the little one and a half year old he he was like looking out the window at something and he starts pointing to it and he just goes B, and i didn't really know what he was talking about and i looked oh. over and sure enough there's this, this adorable little sweat bee on the on the door and he's like a bee and so you know we're looking at it through the glass and having a great time and he was very excited about it okay. um and i realized then that i think that's the only insect name he knows because anytime he sees an insect it's that's a bee um on this occasion he's buying on it was all bees uh which when we were in uh, california the house we were staying in had a beautiful pollinator garden in the backyard so there were bees everywhere um which i would not have been i i would not have sat out there like a couple years ago just because bees i'm worried i'm gonna get stung i probably wouldn't have hung out with the bees but um you know, little man was having the time of his life. He was out in the backyard and he was just like crouching next to the flowers and and going, a bee, a bee. <laughs> he was trying so hard to say like bumblebee, right. but it just came out as like baba bee. <laughs> yeah, there's some tricky forenames in that one. Yeah, but he was very, very interested in the bees. And I do think that he has a much, I think he's much more open to the insects yeah. than my older son is. And I think that has a lot to do with how much I've learned about them. So I don't react to them with fear the same way that I did when my older son was little. In that in that situation in the past, do you think that situation where he's there looking at the bees is something that you would have like out of out of caution or out of I, I don't know, is that something that would have been different back then? If I had I, I do think that my uneasiness towards them came from a lack of knowledge and understanding. Like I do think it came from a lot of especially when <sighs> Going back to the thing you said about people on average not knowing very much about animals, people also don't know the degree of biodiversity among insects. So people might think that bees are one species and that a bee is a bee no matter what. Or they might think a wasp is a wasp, right? And that's just, they're all the same wasp. Um, And so once you get into like understanding that 
one species of wasp can be extremely different from another species of wasp. One might be, you know, more aggressive towards you, whereas the other one doesn't want anything to do with you. And understanding how to tell the difference <laughs> between which one you need to give distance and which one you're probably yeah. okay to hang out near, you know, understanding them a lot better really helped decrease that fear response. So I do think I was having that fear out of just not knowing any better, right? You see a little thing flying, you see a chunky little, you know, B-shaped thing flying around. You think, oh, well, that thing probably is going to sting me <laughs> because you don't know how to tell the difference between one that's going to sting you and one that's not. So you just think they're all going to sting you and then you get freaked out by it and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I do think that if I had been chiller about insects earlier then probably my older son wouldn't be as freaked out as he is by them now but i'm trying now to undo it um mm -hmm. and we're making little baby steps but you know i it's it's interesting to see that play out from kid to kid we can either take this as with the little one is it that he's learning the compassion from you is that undoing the the caution he would have learned otherwise or is it that yeah that children are naturally up for it and that we that we take that away from them at some point. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's been studies done on this. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I, I can only speak for my own kids. Uh, yeah. But based on the people that I've talked to, like for the podcast, so like the guests that we've had on and stuff, it does sound like, like you said, having a parent who's very into nature and knows a lot about it and can kind of like pass that compassion along, that at least does seem to have a, a really strong effect. I don't know if it's the sort of thing where like if you're not taught either way, you'll tend towards compassion or you'll tend towards fear. I, I don't know how much like human instinct plays into it. Yeah, it's the like, question. I, that I, I honestly do not know. But for my own kids, I can definitely see a difference between you know, a child who was a baby when I was afraid of bugs and he is now also afraid of bugs and a child that I had after no longer being afraid of bugs and he is not afraid of bugs. So yeah. I do see a difference in my own kids, but that is, of course, an N of two. So <laughs> not exactly a robust study. You can now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Gubbing the Filth, I want to make a donation like a benevolent Victorian you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash rubbingcast, or you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. As learning more about animals and becoming more kind of animal literate. Oh, that's a that... great term. Oh, I love that. Animal it's literate. That's on the fly. On the fly, which is, of course, the invertebrate. It's, it's children's media. You must, mm. to your great regret, have to deal with quite a lot. And yes. <laughs> how's that looking in terms of like approaches to animals and has has your kind of has learning more and being more aware of that kind of the way that the media and the things we show our kids can can change their views on things have you started noticing things in like the stuff your kids watch and stuff that like you want to be like ah, actually or like stuff that you feel <laughs> and is there anything that you feel really good about like that's really positive for the oh kids? yeah uh, it's getting so much better. Is it really? Like children's media now, I do not at all have nostalgia goggles on for like kids media from when I was a kid. Kids media now is better. Okay. I mean, that's obviously just my opinion, but the vast majority of content being made for kids now is better than it was when I was a kid. Um, I think it's just a lot more conscientious. It seems a lot more like values driven. Like I think that people are being a lot more thoughtful right now about the values they're teaching with children's media. Whereas I feel like stuff geared at kids when I was a kid and before was largely just entertainment. It's yeah. like brain candy, right? Just like something to keep you occupied, to keep you staring at it. Um, very overstimulating, <laughs> very just like wacky, goofy, you know, they would, it was just like what is going to entertain a child. But now I'm seeing a lot more, maybe this is just because this is the media I tend to show my kids. Right. But it's so easy to find stuff made for kids that is made with a moral in mind. That's like, this is the kind of people we want our kids to be. So we're going to show them examples of that. Um, one example of a show that I think gets a lot of 
this middle ground between being entertaining for kids and also like instilling great values is the show on Cartoon Network called Craig of the Creek, which is it's for like older kids. But gosh, it's just this like group of kids in a neighborhood that live up against a creek. So they're like spending all day long goofing off and having fun adventures in the creek. So they're like it is in nature a lot. It's not necessarily about nature, but they're like in nature a lot. And I think that's a really cute show. Um, But like as far as animal specific media, it's a lot more responsible now. Like I grew up on crocodile hunter, which, you know, I, I can't speak enough to like the impact that the crocodile hunter had on like inspiring a generation of people to be interested in animals. But we re we rewatched some crocodile hunter recently. That was not the most ethically done content. (laughs) Some of that stuff. I was like, you know what? You got results, but maybe let's not you know do some of that stuff so it's not completely reproducible um but i think a lot of the stuff that's being made now is a little is a way more mindful of like what kind of behavior do we want our kids to copy basically like what do we want our kids to do we're going to model good behavior knowing that it's not just about having something cool to look at on tv it's about actually like oh we know that what we're going to do other people are going to copy um some shows I really like for my kids right now are Octonauts, um, which is kind of more for like the littler kids. Um, But my older kid still does like it. Um, He's eight, but he's starting to grow out of it, but it's still good. Um, Octonauts is a spectacular show. It's incredibly good. When I was a, isn't it great? When we used to, when I used to work in year one. So it's like, whatever comes after kindergarten. Um, That was, yeah. There was a lot of Octonauts going on back then. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. I love the Octonauts. There's also a show that's definitely for the little littles, but um, it is, I don't remember what channel it's on, but it's called Lucas the Spider. Um, And it's a whole cartoon show about a jumping spider named Lucas and his buddies, which are all like also little bugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not like educational. (laughs) They're not like doing it. They're definitely just like playing games. Yes. Like the spider is this cute little guy. And I, I really like that show. That show's really cute. Um, you know, big ups to this is also not like a nature themed show, but they do sometimes go over nature stuff is bluey. Like my favorite show in the universe. I watch it. I've never seen it. It's, I mean, a lot of it, I, I say it's enjoyable for the adults too, and it is, but a lot of it is so specific to the experience of parenthood that like it is very, very enjoyable for adult parents. If you're not a parent, like it might not resonate the same way, um, but it's just a really cute show. But they have this whole episode uh, where, you know, the kids are playing at a playground, they get really bored, and um, they want to go down to the creek. I'm talking about a creek again. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all in Australia. And oh, the dad takes them down. Yes, it's an Australian show. And the dad takes them down to the creek and Bluey, the main character, at first she's very nervous about it. Like she doesn't want to get in the water. She doesn't want to get muddy. She doesn't want to like, you know, she's just a little spooked by stuff. But over the course of the episode, she warms up to it, starts to like really enjoy like watching the was it dragonflies, I think it was, that were flying around. Like she really starts to warm up to it. She gets cool with it. And by the end, she like sees a wallaby in a clearing and it's really gorgeous. So like it does kind of start to introduce that like nature is not as scary as it might seem like give it a try and don't be so freaked out by it and you'll have a very rewarding experience um and so i do see that a lot more in children's media these days it's getting so much better which is not to say that you're not still gonna have like fear pieces basically you're still gonna see the spider as the bad guy or the wasp as a bad guy or something like you're still gonna see that but I see a lot more positive representation in kids media these days. So I do legitimately think it's getting better. And I think kids are becoming cooler with bugs. Yeah. Like I like to think so. We have a thing in the UK um, called like forest school. I don't know if that's a term that's kind of oh, made wow. across, which is basically where in, 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 I don't do it any, like since moving to Spain, we don't do it, but like back home, like what it is, is, Basically, once a week or a few times a week, maybe, you take the kids out to like a foresty or outdoory area and the and they do naturey learning. So they might mm. they might like like one thing we do it's like, oh, you're gonna go off and you're gonna find the ingredients to make an autumn potion. 
they go and they Ooh. find like oh it's a brown leaf it's a crunchy leaf or it might be like Aww. we're gonna make we're gonna make a den for an animal and they're gonna, they're gonna build mm. things and it's all about getting them happy with the idea of I mean, it's not about this but the idea of being muddy the idea of getting wet and the idea that mm-hmm. the, the world is that the outdoor spaces are exciting and interesting and inevitably that turns into a, especially if i'm leaving the session it turns into who can find the most interesting mini beast and, it's, <laughs> and and you see you do see changes and the kids attitudes change and they they like looking at things and they like learning about things and i think you're right i think that I think that the stuff we are showing kids these days um, and the stuff we teach kids these days is more positive. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm kind of hopeful, actually, in terms of... Because, yeah, I grew up on, like, like the Cramp Twins, which is, like, just Ray. bedlam. And it's... <laughs> I, do, I do think children's media is getting a lot better. And I also, like, I... So outside of podcasting, I, I work at a queer youth centre, um, and so, you know, I get to spend a lot of time with queer teenagers mm-hmm. and I do notice from like the teenagers that I talk to that those less charismatic animals that are often seen as pests are seeing a huge shift in attitudes right. towards them, especially among younger people. Like they're kind of icons at this point. I feel like young people really resonate with like our opossums mm-hmm. and our raccoons and our little like animals that have bats. Bats are a big one. People love bats these days. Yeah. Um I feel like they didn't maybe when I was a kid. You know, so you're I know those are all mammals, but I do think some of those concepts of like, oh, let's actually deconstruct our negative associations with these animals and shift them into like a positive light. So those ideas are like slowly being applied to other non-mammal animals. So you're starting to see people starting to become won over towards spiders mm-hmm. or, you know, Snails. I'm still not seeing it with wasps, but <laughs> I know it's going to come someday. I mean, honeybees have like bees in general what a in, in my lifetime. Had. I feel like I've seen a 180 on bees like in my lifetime. Cause it used to be, if you saw a bee, it was usually in like, Oh, don't get stung sort of way. You know, like in, in even just in my lifetime, it's yeah, become yeah. like they're all over everything oh. and <laughs> people love them. Do you have bee hotels over there? Bee hotels. Like, oh, that sounds familiar. Like in, for the garden, it's like, mm. like little bits of bamboo and stuff. And it's like, you stick it on the wall. It's so that I don't know how much bees like them, but like, but like it, it's probably people probably have them people wear bee necklaces and stuff the, the pr drive on oh, yeah. bees has been huge it's an aesthetic yeah it's it's they 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 nailed it they did great yeah um so you i think you're starting to see cicadas also like have have had a big moment especially with the reemergence of the periodical cicadas that happened in north america i think like last year or maybe two years ago it was very recent that the periodical cicadas like our 17 year ones um came out which was really exciting and so cicadas had a big moment and now there's like cicada art everywhere moths moths are huge right now like everybody loves moths and it does feel like it's driven by that sort of like it almost feels like it's a a sub result of like the mainstream acceptance of like goth and emo and punk culture we're like that has become a lot more mainstream and trendy and along with it comes that sort of desire to like involve yourself enjoy the macabre Mm -hmm. the traditionally you know considered gloomy or creepy or spooky so along with that comes oh well we also want to adopt our that love for the spooky animals like bats and spiders and and stuff like that so I don't think those things are unrelated. I think that has to do with each other. I think that the mainstream acceptance of goth culture has done wonders for invertebrate PR. <laughs> a lot of a lot of kind of culture just feels a bit kind of kinder these days. Like mm-hmm. in terms of the things that are, are being made. So I I do feel optimistic about it all. And let's not beat around the bush. Just the zoo of us is a part of this movement, right? i sure hope so (laughs) i think so i mean maybe could you sort of as we as we wind up and i want to let you go and get on with your your day 
tell us a little bit about just the zoo of us for anyone that's not listened to it before yeah for sure so um that's our podcast that we started three and a half years ago now uh it is an like you mentioned at the top it is a animal review podcast where we rate animals out of 10 in uh three different categories where we kind of evaluate their physical like adaptations so things that are interesting and cool about their body and then their behavior and also just their aesthetics so like how much we like the way they look um we do try really hard to focus on the less charismatic animals, you know, like we'll get, we'll get some, we'll touch on some of the big ones here and there, but we really try to make it so that you're learning about an animal that you maybe haven't heard of um, in every episode Uh, or, or if it is an animal that you've heard of, we're trying to give you something you didn't know about them. Um, So we try really hard to make sure that you are actually learning something new in each episode. We, uh, go back and forth between episodes with me and my husband where we each compile notes and bring our own animal to review um, and then alternate with guest episodes where people like you <laughs> join me with uh, f- to kind of deep dive on mm. either one particular animal or a group of animals. Um, so sometimes, you know, it, it might be a podcaster or a science communicator like you. Uh, sometimes they're scientists that work with these animals. Sometimes they're like musicians or comedians or somebody who just like really likes an animal and wants to come talk about them. So, you know, it, it, is very fun to do we do try really hard to make sure that you're learning new things and we i also very thoroughly fact check them too like we do our notes and fact check as we're doing notes but also when i'm editing the episode i'm fact checking alongside of that too um it's also family friendly it's good for all ages it's not made for kids in the sense that we don't speak like we're speaking to kids like we speak like adults you know and and we're we're not necessarily uh but but we try really hard to like use accessible language and uh not use profanity we try to steer clear of any super graphic topics that might be either distressing or inappropriate for young audiences i know a lot of kids listen yeah um because sometimes I get very charming emails <laughs> that have been dictated to parents uh, that parents type out uh, from, I know one time a, a, a family sent in an email saying they wanted to hear us do an episode on sea stars. Oh, yeah. And I really didn't know anything about sea stars and sea stars are a really big group. And I didn't literally know nothing about sea stars with a gun to my head. I couldn't tell you a fact about sea stars. So <laughs> I was, I was a little intimidated by that. So I looked around a little bit. I found Dr. Christopher Ma, um, who is an echinoderm scientist, a researcher at the Smithsonian and like deals with their like marine invertebrate collection and is like one of the world's leading experts on sea stars. Sent him an email. <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, do you want to come talk about sea stars with me? And he said yes. And he did it. And we talked about sea stars. And, you know, I got to give this little girl her shout out and say, hey, you know, we, this little girl wanted to hear uh, about sea stars. And then sure enough, like a, a couple maybe a couple weeks later or so I get another email from the mom that says we erupted into applause <laughs> and the whole house was cheering because we got to learn about sea stars uh so you know I, I know there's a lot of kids so like you were saying like I do think kids are becoming more receptive mm-hmm. and open to you know um invertebrates and I'm really glad to get to be part of that even if it's just for like a couple kids <laughs> but, but there you go with it the the sea star is a is a, a prime example and now you know more about them now so many more people will know more about them. now that little kid knows more about them and yeah and and you know, that's, and they're about to know a lot more about fleas too <laughs> yeah yeah um that's do you know what it's um oh it did a real number on my mind learning so, like reading so much about fleas like i'm just <laughs> and here's an interesting thing is that if you say to people ask me a question about fleas because you want to kind of like get sort of match ready for the for a podcast interview. <laughs> Most people either won't have a question or are actively like upset that you'd ask them. But, <laughs> but, there, but there we are. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, a wonderful podcast. And if you want to go, and we just learned that if you email them, they'll do what you ask. So go and check out just the zoo of us. Um, I want to, I want to ask you, I've got this new sort of ending question. Um, 
Oh, beautiful. Which is fanciful and speculative, but we we cannot have a chat with the animals, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Your parrot's fine. But <laughs> if we could, and if you could ask a question about the animals or about the animal world or about something specific, what do you want to know? Like, if there was one thing we could kind of have the answer to that we don't have right now, mm. what is it that, that if just the zoo of us could... could lead the charge (laughs) and you can make this announcement of this new piece of knowledge Mm -hmm. we have what do you reckon i would ask the european eel Mm -hmm. where and how are they getting it on because nobody knows (laughs) and it's such a weird fact as well it is i would i would also be happy to ask that too is it great white sharks that like we have no clue where they go to like breed and mate and stuff like that. I think it's great white sharks. It's either great white sharks or another type of like one of those large sharks where like they disappear into the ocean for a while and then have babies and like show up later with babies. <laughs> so I would probably talk to some of those deep sea like creatures. So with the European eel, that's you know part of their life cycle is going out to the Sargasso Sea doing something (laughs) and then having babies. So it's like that. It's like a weird thing where like, it's really difficult to track them into that area. It's difficult to monitor. Um, And so it's just one of those things. It's like a big open-ended question. Like, I don't know. We don't really, and it's kind of become a meme almost of like nobody knowing what eels are doing. Uh, So that would probably be a big burning question. I would probably want to interview a, a European eel about, uh, their that gap in their life cycle that we don't know about have you done an eel episode we have actually we talked about the european eel like super early on was it a guest or was it you guys oh i spoke to a european eel perfectly it's personally <laughs> right yeah i was have you like <laughs> no it was me it was just me doing my notes i'll, I'll cut this bit out probably but like <laughs> maybe i won't because let's give him a shout out have you got the um <laughs> the eel historian on twitter i we follow each other on twitter what, a, what a as result. a result of that episode because i i quoted something that he had written in that episode yeah. um and so we we followed each other on twitter after that but we haven't actually gotten anything uh Main, coordinated yet but yeah holes, so i hit him but like <laughs> but yeah that guy is a is a what a resource for i i sent I him never... some eel like like there's a picture in alice in wonderland with an eel trap in the mm. background and I was like, have you seen these wow. eels? I never knew that eels had such a significant role in human history. Oh, yeah. Like, no clue. I guess because I, it makes more sense. Like, in European history, I guess they were used more as food and as currency and stuff like that. So it factors more into it here. But, like, eels aren't a super common thing around here. Right. So it's not something you really think about often. But had no idea. But So I've been following him on, on Twitter for a couple of years now. And it's always boggles my mind of, like, I had no idea that eels were such a big deal. So if you want to know more about eels, go and follow the <laughs> eel historian on Twitter. Again, they have a spine, so whatever. But, like, um, you better tell me, like, just tell me a really cool invert to finish off. Let me see a really cool invertebrate. Uh, the scale, the scaly foot snail, oh yeah, or the one. scaly foot gastropod, uh, the volcano snail, uh, a snail whose body is covered in iron scales. It lives in hydrothermal vents in the Indian Ocean, and they're the coolest thing in the world. That's probably one of like my favorite animals that I. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't say one of my favorite invertebrates in the entire world. The North American giant millipede. Absolute bro. <laughs> favorite. I love that. It's like up there with my favorite like animals in general. North American giant millipede. But if you're looking for a critter that is just like completely bizarre and fascinating and like death metal to its core, it's got to be the scaly foot snail that is covered in iron scales and lives in a volcano. <laughs> there is um, I'll, another shout out for a, a, a separate thing outside of podcasts. There's a wonderful, um, oh, what are they called? There's a wonderful mollusk themed death metal band. Called, what? <laughs> oh, what are they called? Um, 
They've got a song oh, slime covered. <laughs> oh, oh so, um, sludge. Yes, sludge. sludge. Um, so it's so they want to <laughs> get on the based pun filled extreme metal. It's good stuff, but they've, they've they should get on the old volcano snail. But Ellen, I will will pull away from snail themed death metal. Thank you so much for chatting <laughs> to me this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure, and and yeah, please go away and have a listen to just the two of us. Look up the the various invertebrate episodes, of which there are many mm. very very fine ones. Mm. And yeah, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to speak with me tonight. Of course, thank you so much, Tom. It has been a complete delight. Thank you. Grubbing in the Filth is written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. Well, thanks again to Ellen Weatherford. You can find Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter at GITF Podcast or Instagram at Grubbing in the Filth. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Thank you.